begin uh, this morning our series, A Costly Journey, that will take us through this season of Lent, considering the journey of discipleship. I want to share with you, and, and that some of you can relate, and I, I think maybe this is something that I've, I've shared before, but bears repeating, especially if this is a truth uh, in your life. My father, uh, my dad was my first uh, GPS device, and, and by device I don't mean I carried him around with me, but I mean every time I needed to go somewhere. When I started driving, whether it was in the city of Greensboro where I grew up, uh, or anywhere out of, out of Greensboro, my father always knew the way to go, always. And, and he could tell me how to get to some house in some other part of, of Greensboro. I love uh, Greensboro. I, I couldn't be more thankful to be able to call the high country home. I've now lived here more than half of my life. But if I had to choose a, a city to live in, again, Greensboro would be the place. One of the things that makes it unique is that there are these distinctly different areas of Greensboro and neighborhoods. And so my dad could tell me how to get from where we lived to somewhere on, on entirely the, the entire other side of, of town. Um, and without ever looking at a map, he could just tell me where to go, which was impressive, but not, not super impressive because he'd lived there since he was nine. So, I mean, just by default, like you're going to learn, hopefully, the place where you live. What was more impressive to me um, was the fact that when I began to drive, like when he trusted me enough to leave Greensboro, um, and that was because I didn't tell him that a lot of the times the directions he was giving me were to some party that I probably shouldn't have been at in the first place. Um, but when he trusted me enough to, to begin to leave Greensboro, and uh, my favorite place to go was to the coast. I would go and visit a friend who lived on the coast, or I had a buddy whose, whose parents lived like an hour from Myrtle Beach, and, and he would let me, 17, 18-year-old Vern, get in the car and drive from Greensboro to the South Carolina coast. To this day, I don't know why he trusted me to do that, but maybe it was his trust in the directions that he gave me. And, and he, would, he could tell me exactly how to get from, I mean, handwritten without ever looking at a map or an atlas, because that was what you did in, in that day. You didn't pull it up on your phone, um, because that would be like picking up the phone in your kitchen, and all that was, there were numbers. Like, there was, no, there was no GPS on your phone, and if you had a cell phone, you carried it in what looked like a suitcase. <laughs> Again, no, there was no map there. So, Without even opening an atlas, he could write the directions down from, like, this is the turn you take out of the driveway to begin the journey, and would only have me on the interstate for as little time as absolutely necessary. After that, it was, it was the back roads of the eastern part of North Carolina and, and the northeastern part of South Carolina. And that was because my dad, for a living traveled like that was what he did and that was his territory and 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 the thing that was most impressive is he didn't give me road names or numbers it was landmarks that he gave me and and I think because he knew that it, it would force me to pay attention to what was happening in front of me but landmarks there's an old gas station at a flashing, uh, a flashing, there's a flashing light at an intersection. There's an old rundown gas station there uh, with a payphone. Um, that's to some of you. You used to have to like there were phones that you put money in and you could make phone calls. It was the coolest thing. If you didn't have money, you could just call collect, and the person receiving the call would have to pay for it. <clears throat> My dad could tell me where that gas station was, 
where that payphone was and, and that that was my turn. And, and he would get me from, from where I started to where I needed to be in the fastest way possible. That was the thing he prided himself in the most. It was not just that he knew the directions. It was that he knew the quickest way to get there because he knew the journey. He knew the route. He knew how to get there. This morning, we begin a journey with Jesus to Jerusalem. And, and we will be in Luke's gospel for the entirety of, of Lent. And this journey that we are on, yes, with Jesus to Jerusalem, on Palm Sunday we will celebrate his, and remember his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but ultimately um, to the beginning of Holy Week and, and to those events that lead up to um, Jesus' crucifixion prior to us gathering together on Easter Sunday and celebrating his resurrection. But we cannot appreciate the resurrection and the empty tomb without considering the journey that, that led Jesus to that moment and what that journey means for us. So the way that Luke records uh, this journey, we'll begin in Luke 9.51 and we'll read that scripture in just a moment. But, but Luke records from that moment forward, it, it, is, it is a journey narrative. So everything that Jesus is teaching and everything that Jesus is doing that we see from that point forward in Luke's gospel uh, is, is happening on the journey from, from where he is to Jerusalem. And we are invited to be a part of that journey. More importantly, what we are invited to consider is that this is a costly journey. It is the journey of discipleship. It is the journey in which we are invited to follow Jesus with our lives, with the entirety of who we are. And, and know this, there is, there is grace in it, which is a good thing because we, we desperately need the grace that is available in this journey because we don't always walk this journey well. And the invitation stands for those of you who have been walking with the Lord for decades as much as it stands for those of you who are like, I'm not really entirely sure about this whole Jesus thing or about this whole church thing. The next step of your journey is the most important step of your journey regardless of how many steps of your journey you have behind you. The invitation stands for all of us, but know this about the journey. There are no shortcuts in the journey of discipleship. There are no shortcuts. It is a journey that is meant to cost us everything. And the hope in it is that everything was given so that we can make this journey. Everything was given by Jesus, emptied himself. Everything was given by Jesus so that we might embark on this journey with him. He makes it possible. He is the inspiration for it. He is the motivation for it. He is the one that picks us up when we fall. He is the grace. He is the one that redirects us when we get off track. Jesus is the one who makes the journey possible and, and, and the one who inspires us and calls us to it and the one who walked it ahead of us. The question that we have to consider in this journey of, of discipleship, the thing that we have to wrestle with is, is to ask how, how is it that the world, we have allowed the world to inform our understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because what the world every day at every turn seeks to convince us uh, is that we can have maximum return with minimum investment. Right? We should expect that things are going to be fast. We should expect um, immediate results. We should expect that things will, will be easy, will come easily to us. And, and it, it shouldn't cost us a whole lot. 
and, and we allow that mentality and that understanding, I'm afraid, to bleed over into our understanding of what it means to be followers of Jesus and what it looks like to be on this journey of discipleship. And so we like to, and we'll see this in our text, we like to uh, pick and choose and we like to shape the journey of discipleship on our terms rather than allowing Jesus to define the terms for us of discipleship. Brennan Manning, in his book, The Signature of Jesus, says this, To be a Christian is to be like Christ. Somehow we must lose our life in order to find it. Christianity preaches not only a crucified God, but also crucified men and women. May I never boast except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's from Galatians 6.14. And then he says this, there is no discipleship without the cross. I am not a follower of Jesus if I live with him only in Bethlehem and Nazareth and not in Gethsemane and on Calvary too. I'm going to read that again because that, that shapes, that, that informs our entire journey through these, these next several weeks of Lent. There is no discipleship without the cross. I am not a follower of Jesus if I live with him only in Bethlehem and Nazareth and not in Gethsemane and on Calvary too. If you would, in honor of the reading of God's word, please stand with me. We'll be in Luke chapter 9 and we'll be in Luke 14. I'm just going to read the passages right now from Luke 9. Uh, We'll read Luke 9.51, and then we'll jump down to 57 through 62. But listen to these words that uh, Luke's recording of the beginning of this journey. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. In verse 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What is it that keeps you in the safety and the quaintness of Bethlehem? What is it that keeps you in, in just the, the place of young Jesus' life or, or, or the teachings of Jesus in, in Nazareth and, and keeps you from embarking on the journey to the suffering of Gethsemane and the suffering of the cross. This week we asked you that question. What keeps you from embarking on the costly journey of discipleship? In our newsletter that goes out each week, if you don't receive the newsletter, highly encourage you. You can sign up on our website. You can shoot an email to communications at booneumc.org. It is the best way to know weekly what is going on in the life of our church. But we ask that question. What is it that keeps you um, from walking on this journey of discipleship? And you answered. 
Can we get that slide up there, Sarah? I'm going to step down here so I can read some of these. Complacency. Family. Disappointment. Obligations. Laziness. Distracted. Busyness. Debt. It's overwhelming. The unknown. Anxiety. Guilt. Change. Jesus. Fearful. Shunned. Selfishness. Friends, the number one response that you gave this week when asked the question, what hinders you or what keeps you from walking this journey of discipleship was fear. I'm afraid. And there was, you didn't elaborate, just fear. Fear of change, fear of what's next, fear of the unknown, fear of what it may cost. For the next several weeks, we're, we're going to unpack that. We're going to look at things that Jesus teaches, and we're going to look at the examples of others along the way. And, and know that this is not an exhaust, exhaustive series on, on the costly journey that is discipleship. But the hope is that it invites all of us, all of us, myself included, invites all of us to examine those things that might be hindrances or those patterns that exist in our lives currently that keep us from walking faithfully, faithfully as disciples of Jesus. But as we consider fear, know this, that the safest place for you to be in your life is in the center of God's will. There is no place safer not the most comfortable place. Jesus is really clear. <laughs> it is not meant to be comfortable. And he doesn't promise that it will be comfortable. And if you have been handed and promised a Christianity that is supposed to be comfortable, and that in your life you should chase and pursue comfort, I, I am sorry, on behalf of the church, that is not what Christianity is meant to be. That is not what Jesus promises. Now, Jesus may promise to bless you in ways that make your life feel comfortable, but at some point, he is going to ask of us. At some point, there is, you are going to recognize that there is a cost inherent in following Jesus. There is no safer place to be than in the center of God's will. It is not going to be comfortable, but know this, that he promises to comfort you, to comfort us in the midst of the journey. There's a big distinction between the two. Jesus, who set his eyes resolutely to Jerusalem, and different translations capture that in different ways. Some say his eyes were like flint. He set his eyes unwaveringly toward Jerusalem, beginning his own journey away from Bethlehem, away from Nazareth, that would ultimately lead to the cross, that would lead to betrayal by the men that he entrusted enough to call them into life with him over the course of those three years of his ministry. Resolutely set his eyes to Jerusalem and all that awaited him. So as we begin this journey together, know, and as you consider the things that, that for many of us it means uh, giving up, ways of thinking, ways of living, ways that we prioritize our lives, 
Some of those are named in, in the words that we, we just saw. There is a cost inherent in discipleship. But the, the cost of, of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus, the cost of true discipleship, and I don't, I don't mean the cost of checking boxes, and we'll talk about that in just a moment when we look at our passage, but the cost of following Jesus, the cost of true discipleship in no way compares to how expensive it is for us to choose not to follow Jesus. Because what the world will seek to extract from you, what the world will seek to steal from you, ultimately is your heart. The cost of following Jesus, yes, it costs us our life, but the promise in that is that that is the way that we find life as it was truly meant to be lived. The cost of not following Jesus means that we, it, the world is going to steal our heart from us. It is going to rob us, the very core of who we are, with no promise of anything in return. And I think so often we get tripped up and think that if I can just reach this goal in my life, if I can just reach this promotion, if I can just reach graduation, if I can just have this relationship, if I can, whatever, I mean, the list goes on. There's so many things that we are tempted to chase and pursue. And listen, the pursuit of, none of those things are inherently wrong. The pursuit, the desire for relationship, the, the, the pursuit of advancement and the job God's given you, the pursuit of doing well and whatever has been placed in front of you, that, that we, ought to, we ought to give ourselves fully to those things, but not at the expense of who we are meant to be in Jesus. Not in, in, in the manner, uh, not doing so in a way that we look to those people and those things in our lives as, as the source of what will ultimately fulfill us and satisfy us because they won't. They're never meant to. Never meant to. Every good thing, every good gift that you have in your life is meant to be an expression of God's goodness for you. It is not ever meant to be the, the stopping point of our praise and our worship. It is meant to be the thing that, that propels our, our hearts and our minds to the giver of that good gift. And, and yet we chase and pursue these things that the world holds out for us and convinces us that we have to have. So this morning we want to examine maybe some obstacles uh, that might exist in some way, shape, or form in our lives. Verse 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I, if I'm Jesus and I know the, like the program that I have been sent for, and, and, and part of that, I mean, ultimately, yes, is the cross, is the, 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 uh, the atonement of, of sins, the, the, the restoration, the rescue of humanity. But along the way, part of what we see Jesus do is to teach in a way that no one has ever taught before. We, we, we read in the, the gospel accounts that Jesus teaches as one who has authority. He is revealing to the world a new way of living, a new way of being in relationship with the Father. And, and the more people that can grab onto that, the more that message then goes out from me. So if I'm Jesus and someone comes up to me and says, I will follow you wherever you go, I want that person. Like, I want that guy on the team, right? That, he just seems like unbridled willingness to go wherever, wherever I go. I mean, that, that's the kind of person we want on the team. 
right? They will do whatever we ask them to. That seems like a very reasonable and, and enthusiastic request to follow Jesus. And Jesus gives this, what seems like a very strange response. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I, I just picture this man walking up, you know, like maybe he had to jog or like speed walk to catch up with Jesus as Jesus is walking along. And he's like, hey, Je-, kind of tugs on his arm, Jesus, I'll, I'll follow you wherever you go. And, and I don't know if he's like saying this in comparison to the disciples that Jesus had already called, like, you know, almost like, I don't know about these jokers, but I'm your guy. I will go wherever you go. And then Jesus gives this response. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And I imagine this man just stopping, stopping in his tracks. Jesus and the disciples and the rest who are with him continue to walk on, and this man is literally left scratching his head. What? What, what, is, what kind of response is this? What does this mean? What Jesus is doing here is testing this man's enthusiasm. What he, what he is telling this man in the response that he's giving, he's essentially saying, are you sure? Because I don't have a destination other than the cross. I don't, I don't have a home that I'm going to. Are you sure? I don't have a place that I'm going to go and, and lay my head after we get through the end of this day or after we get through the end of the next day or the next three days or the end of the week or the end of the month. I don't, I don't have a place that I, is my final destination other than the cross that awaits me on Golgotha. I'm going to be dependent on the generosity of others. I'm going to be dependent on the generosity of those that I come in contact with. I'm going to be dependent on the boy with the five loaves and the two fish to not only feed me and my disciples, but to feed the 5,000 who are gathered listening to what I have to say to them. I don't, I don't have a retirement plan. I don't, I don't have uh, you know, money saved up. I don't, I don't have... Um, a, a, a beautiful home somewhere on the Sea of Galilee that I'm going to go to when all of this is said and done. Are you sure that you are willing to walk that journey with me? Because for that man, it would have meant a lot of unknown. The only thing that that man would have been sure with is that he was walking with Jesus. Friends, sometimes the call and the cost of the journey of discipleship is that God would ask you to give up everything that you know and everything that you have, have put together in a nice, neat way for your life, everything that gives you comfort, everything that feels like it gives you stability, and, and walk in such a way that the only thing that you are sure of is that Jesus walked uh, with you, that he invited you to walk on this journey, that he's walking with you, and that he promises to be with you always. Are you willing to walk that journey? Because sometimes I think we, we respond out of a place of enthusiasm. I, I mean, we, we have had, gosh, since the start of this year, really since going back to, I, I believe, um, Advent and our, our Christmas Eve service and then our covenant renewal service at the beginning of this year, we've had, in my opinion, some of the, the most powerful times of worship together as a church. And when we experience that, it is easy for us to, to feel like we're just in this place of enthusiasm. Like, God, sign me up. I, I want in. I want to be a part of what it is that you are offering and promising me. 
But if all we are doing is responding out of a place of enthusiasm and responding out of a, a, a place of just what we're feeling, at, at some point what we are feeling ceases to be a good motivator. And, and we are invited instead to root ourselves in, in what is true, first of all, about who Jesus is and secondly about who he says we are. And not just about our circumstances and not just about what we are feeling. Because no matter how powerful a time of worship is in this space, at some point we have to walk out of those doors. And we have any number of things waiting for us in the world that are going to challenge us, that are going to seek to dishearten us, that are going to seek to throw us off track. And and essentially what Jesus is asking this man to do is is to count the cost. Like, are are you sure? Are you really willing to follow me? Because my destination ends in suffering. It ends in life, yes. Don't mishear me. There is life to be found in following Jesus. Life to the full, he says in John 10.10. But it is going to cost us. There might be things about this world and about our lives that we are unsure of. The thing we are invited to be rooted in, concretely sure of, is the faithfulness and the goodness of Jesus. He goes on, said to another man, follow me, but he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Again, this seems so honorable. This this seems like absolutely I would want someone to be with me who, who understands and appreciates the value of family. And, and the priority that family can, can be in, in one's life. And, and even if it's not biological family, like the, the priority and the gift of, of community, like prioritizing relationship with others, it seems like an honorable response. And yet Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What? Is, is Jesus telling this man, don't, don't, worry, don't worry about your father. He's not going anywhere. This seems like a hard teaching that, that we would maybe put this right up there with Jesus saying that you must hate your family, hate your, your, your mother and your brothers and sisters and your father. But beneath the surface here, Jesus is, is speaking to the religious customs and practices of the day. The, the form of faithfulness. The appearance of faithfulness is what Jesus is attacking here. He's not saying to this man, don't don't honor your family by going and tending to your father who has passed away. He's not telling the man to, to neglect honoring family. He is challenging this man in what his what he is being faithful to. Are you just faithful to the law? Are you faithful to checking a box? You know, for us, maybe we would say, is it, is it just about coming to church on Sunday mornings? Is it just about putting an offering in the offering plate? And you're like, hey, check that box for Sunday. I'm good for the rest of the week. And if nothing comes up, I'll be back next week. Listen, for some of you, if that's all you can do, that's your starting point. That's a great place to begin. But that is not the goal of the Christian life. It is the gift of the Christian life to be able to gather in community with one another and to lift our voices in worship. But it is about so much more than an hour or an hour and 15 or an hour and a half, depending on how long Vern preaches on Sunday mornings. Right. My first alarm already went off. I'm aware. 
What is the, the form of faithfulness that you have allowed yourself to become convinced is the goal of the Christian life, the goal of discipleship? Because Jesus is challenging that here. It's like when he calls the, the Pharisees. He's like, you're whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside. You know how to play the role. But on the inside, there's, there's death and decay. Friends, you, you can be a faithful church attender every Sunday for years and not ever deal with the thing that Jesus is after above all else, and that is your heart. And Jesus is willing to call us to the carpet on that, and he's willing to go straight to the place where it is probably going to hurt the most. Because he knows what we have given our hearts to, and he knows the wounds that we carry as a result of that. Maybe for you, he knows the way that religion has hurt you. knows the way that the church has hurt you. But know that that's not what he's inviting you to. Yes, he wants to, to enjoy and to be a part of the gift of the body for all of its flaws and for all of its brokenness. But that's not the goal. to be the goodness, it's meant to be the expression of the faithfulness of Jesus at work in this world, but it's not the goal. The goal is a surrender of your heart. The goal is to begin to look at the gathering of the body as, as the thing that, that is a celebration of what God is doing the other six days of the week in your life, as some put it. To come together in a room of people and say, hey, the, the playing field is level. We're all broken and in desperate need of a Savior we get to acknowledge in the time that we have here together. We get to acknowledge that and lift our voices and proclaim the truth of who God is and his goodness over us. And to remember that because we have a tendency to forget. So Jesus isn't telling this man, hey, forget your family. He's saying, hey, forget the form of religion that is empty. I don't want somebody that just wants to check boxes. I want somebody that's willing to be all in. Go instead and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And then finally, still another said, I will follow you, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. This one maybe is the most difficult for some of us. I want to dictate the terms of my discipleship. I want to dictate the terms. I want to decide how much it's going to cost me. I want to decide how much of myself I'm going to give to following Jesus. I want to decide how uncomfortable I'm going to allow Jesus to make me feel. I want to decide uh, how, how, how much I, I um, let the Holy Spirit in as if we can decide what the Holy Spirit does. Friends, for so many of us, we have tried and continue to try to define the terms of discipleship rather than allowing Jesus to be the one who defines the terms for us. And I wonder how much of our frustration over a life spent trying to follow Jesus exists because we are trying to define the terms. Rather than trusting the one who calls us, rather than trusting the one who invites us on this journey, rather than trusting that when, when he begins to speak of the cost, trusting that it is for our own good that we are called to give up some of these things and these ways of thinking and these ways of prioritizing our lives. 
And, and the beauty for us is, it is, it doesn't matter where you are in life, it doesn't matter where you are on the journey, it is never too late to take the next step of faithfulness in life with Jesus. It is never too late to take the next step on this costly journey that is discipleship. And it is never too late to begin to experience the fullness of life that Jesus promises in himself. Your day has not passed. If you are here and you are given the gift of drawing breath today in this moment, it is not too late for you. The invitation stands. The journey is costly, but the result is good and it is life beyond anything you could ever imagine. I want to close with this. This is from Luke chapter 14. Beginning in verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Jesus is beginning to amass a following word, is getting out. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, just mentioned that, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't you first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with the 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew records Jesus as saying, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and daily, daily take up their cross and follow me. Daily. Friends, there is grace There is grace for us in being told that every day we examine our hearts. Every day we make the choice to follow Jesus faithfully. It's not just something that we decide one time at one point in my life, in our lives. It is something that we have the opportunity to decide every day, this is what I want to give my life to. We get to count the cost. Many of us have, have counted the cost and examining, examined what the world is promise, promising us and say, it costs me more not to give my life to Jesus than it does to give my life to Jesus because I've tried that. I've tried giving my life to the things that the world says will give me life and I'm only wounded and beat up and battered and bruised as a result. I want to know life and I want to know life in Christ because I've exhausted every other option. I've counted the cost and I've decided that he is worthy. Friends, Jesus will will work in your life to bring you to that point where you are ready to say yes to him. And there's grace in that. It's so good. It's so good that Jesus is willing to reveal to us those, those lesser things that we have given ourselves to. And I love that Jesus, seeing the large crowds, takes advantage of that opportunity to say some really hard things. Jesus isn't concerned with crowds. That's not what he wants. For him, it's not about numbers. It's about faithfulness. It's about surrender. It's about trusting him enough to say yes today. It's about trusting him enough to say yes again tomorrow should you be gifted another day. Say, Jesus, all I want is life with you and I'm willing to walk the journey. And in the process, I'm willing to tell others about how good this is. Because there is a world around us, church, 
that is constantly giving its heart to lesser things and lesser people and are wounded as a result. And the gift is that we have the opportunity to come alongside them and say, hey, this is a costly journey, but it's costly because it matters. It's costly because there's life found in it, unlike anything you have experienced up to this point. Let me close with these words from Paul David Tripp. This is from his devotional, New Morning Mercies. As we consider the the invitation to daily take up our cross and follow Jesus, the grace in that invitation being given every day. He says, for the believer, obedience is not a pain, but a joy. Each act of obedience, and and I would say no, no matter how small it feels like it is, each act of obedience celebrates the grace that motivates and empowers it. It is a wonder of transforming grace that the heart of a self-focused human being can abandon the pursuit of his own little kingdom and give itself to serve the purpose of the kingdom of another. Anytime we desire in word, thought, or action to do what pleases God, we are being rescued, transformed, and empowered by his grace. So smile when you obey. You are experiencing the riches of grace. Give thanks when you submit. You are being rescued by grace. Celebrate when you make the right choice. You are being transformed by grace. Sing for joy when you serve God's purposes. You have just given evidence of the presence of redeeming grace in your life and in the lives of the people around you who are watching you. Friends, the journey is costly, but it is a journey in which we find life to the full life as it was meant to be lived. As our worship team plays uh, during this last song, Patty and I will be um, up front here uh, by our altar. If you'd like to come forward for prayer, if not, that's fine. But just know that the, the opportunity exists for you to come and pray. And just know that as costly as the journey is, the hope and the promise of life in it outweighs anything that this world will offer. May we journey together over the next several weeks to Gethsemane and the cross and friends, then ultimately to an empty tomb. Please stand and pray with me. Jesus, thank you for the call. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you that you ask of us our lives because you know, you know, know those things that we try to build our lives upon and around. You know those those things that we try to orient our lives toward that are not you, and, and you know the ways that those things wound us and bring us harm. And we're so thankful that part of your the part of the evidence of your grace in our lives is to reveal those things to us. So I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would allow all of us to hear your voice in this invitation, this costly journey of discipleship. That you would give us the grace to count the cost and that we would see or that it is worth whatever we could give because you were willing to give it all so that we might know life. I pray that you would use our time in worship, that you would use the words spoken today, our time of fellowship to continue to encourage us on this journey.
your good and precious name.